From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and welcome to Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. We are certainly living in unprecedented times. As of today, June 15th, 2020, there are over 7.5 million cases of the coronavirus, COVID-19, worldwide, with a little over 2.1 million of those cases here in the United States. We recently passed 100,000 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, which was a sobering milestone many found unbelievable in early February, and the pandemic still rages on. The global pandemic is changing our world as we know it, and for PAs and many other healthcare providers on the front lines of this crisis, its impact is felt even more acutely. For those of us who are seeing and treating these patients, not being able to go home to see our family as we normally would, witnessing the debilitating effects of the virus on our patients and on our peers, having to make difficult and sometimes heartbreaking decisions about patient care, and often not even having the ability to make direct contact with our patients because of all of the personal protective equipment or PPE that we're having to don gowns and masks and gloves And all these barriers that eliminate that contact that we typically have with our patients is taking a toll. For others, managing home and work challenges has become very difficult as children are out of school, daycares are shut down, people are shifting to online patient appointments or facing job uncertainty. It is all very stressful and emotionally taxing. Now, we at Vital Minds and the PA Foundation, we seek to be a resource for PAs and all healthcare providers on topics that impact work that we do daily, and this one is directly impacting us now. So today I'm pleased to be able to bring together two experts to discuss how we can best manage the stress and challenges of this difficult time. Like most of our recent episodes, this episode of Vital Minds is being recorded remotely, so you can be confident we're practicing our social distancing and capturing today's conversation. Joining me today are Dr. Charles Raison, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Director of Research on Spiritual Health for Emory Healthcare in Atlanta, Georgia, and Katherine Judd, Assistant Clinical Professor at the University of Texas Southwestern, and previously a Senior Psych PA at Parkland Health and Hospital System in Dallas, Texas. She also serves with me as a PA Foundation board member. Thank you both for joining me today. And thank you, James, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, for PAs and other healthcare professionals that are on the front lines right now, there is a clear correlation between this pandemic and an increase in emotional distress. The rapid spread of COVID-19 and the surprisingly severe symptoms in many patients have taxed the limits of our healthcare systems and of our capacities to work. In the midst of this crisis, maintaining a healthcare workforce that's physically and mentally healthy is absolutely vital. Now, the circumstances are leading to stress, anxiety, depression in both our patients and our providers. As professionals who are seeing these concerns regularly, how do you feel like this situation is different? Okay, thank you, James. Uh, These definitely are uncertain times, and it is important that we recognize this. You know, we do our best in our individual, normal, predictable But what we are experiencing now is far, far from routine normal. It's normal to feel anxious and afraid and uncertain when things are not normal and with a loss of normalcy. Right now, the the feeling is the loss of connection. 
this hurts and it hurts hard. And at some level, it's, it's a form of grief. And it is a collective community global grief. And, and this is different. We have no control. We don't know how much. We don't know how long this is going to last. And it has changed. It has changed us. It has changed what we do from day to day. And the world is not the same as it was before. And I think this leaves us at some level afraid that it may not be temporary, that it's different and it's open-ended. Yeah. I mean, I'll jump in. That's, I could not agree more. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot, I know, Kathy, in terms of, you know, if you think about, uh, well, you know, if, if you look at what, what are the things that give people stress-related disorders, what are the characteristics of the stressors, the things that set people up for, like, post-traumatic stress disorder is a stressor that is deeply distressing, very, very threatening, um, unexpected, and for which there's a feeling that it's not controllable. Um, the, the, the shock of something that's just out of your control, unexpected, and overwhelming, uh, that is the recipe for people developing, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, I think... Um, it's one thing when that happens in your private life and it's horrible, um, but you know people are often helped by looking around and seeing that the world itself seems stable. Um, as you were saying, Kathy, I mean, what, what's happened here is that it's the world itself that's developed PTSD. Um, and that is just an altogether different level of stress. Um, you know, there are, there are many years of studies showing that when a society or a culture undergoes stress like a war or, or genocide or things like this, that the rates of, of mental uh, disturbance, mental illness, they skyrocket. There were data from Afghanistan in the mid-2000s done by the, the CDC showing that, you know, 60% of the population or so had diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder at that moment. That, that's a... I don't know, it's 100, you know, that's a 30, 40 times increased risk compared to, to you know, kind of folks in general. So, I mean, we, we are in a perfect storm of, of stress right now. And for the reasons you said, it's got all those characteristics. It's overwhelming. It's unpredictable. It was unexpected. It should not have been unexpected. I mean, we've known this risk for a long time, but we weren't prepared for it. Um, so yeah, this is really, really rough. And, you know, James, when you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, your description of the frontline folks and how, you know, the clinicians on the frontline, part of the stress they're having is not only are they experiencing everything that you described, but they are also having a very different experience than many Americans now who are venturing back out and I think have high hopes that there will be some return to normalcy. And that is an additional stressor. You know, if you are, if you are in a world where you're seeing the full ravages of what COVID does to people that are tapped on the shoulder in a bad way, um, uh, you're seeing something that many Americans are not seeing right now. And so you're having on top of the general stressful experience that we're all having and on top of the stress inherent in caring for people under these circumstances, there's another stress, which is that you are living in a world that is out of sync with what many people in the culture are now experiencing. So it's just, there's a lot of pain and it's just hard from every angle right now. 
I really agree. I think you guys both brought up some great points. And the unique perspective that healthcare providers have on the pandemic, I think, is, is a point to, you know, focus on where healthcare providers are experiencing a very high level of stress that is very different from what we normally experience. Now, we are prepared to see trauma in our work. Many of us have, you know, built up that that kind of ability to shift certain things around as needed and focus on treating your patients. But in responding to this pandemic, it feels very different emotionally. Uh, why would you guys think that this is affecting us in such a profound way? You know, James, I, I think one of the things that, that happens, you mentioned that uh, we're prepared to see trauma in our work um, day to day. But this is different. This is, this is 24 hours a day, seven days a week at, at multi-levels, uh, not only in our work, um, but at home, professionally, personally, relationships, et cetera. And there's no break, so to speak. There's no taking five. There's no catching our breath. There's no bouncing back. There's no weekend in between to recalibrate. Uh, it's ever present. Uh, and, and the risk, uh, the risk makes it different as well. There's no back, bouncing back to what normal has been in the past. Normal in the past has been lost. Uh, there's no opportunity um, to go backwards. Uh, and with that uh, is the loss of normalcy. Uh, the uncertainty, the loss of predictability, uh, and the loss of normal expectancy. Yeah. And, you know, the fear. So, you know, COVID is it, it's such an odd beast, right? Many, many people that contract it either have no symptoms or have something that is unpleasant but manageable. And then in ways that are still pretty much completely unpredictable, although we are beginning to understand some of the risk factors, other people uh, have these really painful and difficult deaths. And so there's this sort of sense, you know, if you're, if you're just down in the trenches every day taking care of these people that are dying and, and having these really, really rough experiences, you as a healthcare worker have in front of your face, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. So, you know, I, I'm mostly a researcher these days, and, and I've been impacted in all sorts of ways that are emotionally challenging. But, you know, with, if you're not on the front line every day in where, you know, in, in healthcare, um, you kind of tell yourself, well, you know, I don't know, you know, I'll probably get lucky, whatever. But, you know, it, it, the picture's worth a thousand words. And when you're dealing on a regular basis with people that are dying, that are very, very ill, there's just no denying that this illness has this personal risk that you're, you know, you're, you're taking home with you the very risk that you're trying to treat and your risk exposing your families or, or you're socially isolated to protect them against that risk. The, 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 the personal association and the vulnerability of, of all of us as humans in the face of this, I think, is part of why uh, it's contributing to the massive stress for healthcare workers. Thank you both for those insightful comments. I think it does show how apt the metaphor of hospital-based care and healthcare workers and the EMTs, everyone being on the front lines, really is. We are very much facing a 
somewhat disastrous situation for many providers as they learn to cope and deal with these things. And as we've mentioned, the inability to see the light at the end of the tunnel can be very taxing. Um, I personally went from cardiac surgery to working in internal medicine uh, as the pandemic kind of ramped up and our elective cases slowed down. And that was one of the things that was the most striking to me and somewhat discouraging was coming in daily and seeing patients that you know should get better. You know, they, don't, they didn't have some of the issues that you would expect them to do poorly because of. And seeing them continue to struggle and remain on oxygen day after day after day. And I think that was very different where normally we see people get better quicker. And the discouraging part of calling family members and saying, here's where we're at. We're continuing the course. We'll let you know if anything changes was very difficult. That becoming that go-between and having to have those conversations, I felt myself, it was emotionally taxing. Absolutely. Right. Uh, well, okay, so there's two things that you said that I think are really powerful. The first is, you know, in medicine, you know, unexpected things happen. And of course, you know, young people get hit by a car um, and it's a, a, a horrible tragedy. But, but, but we have in our brains and in, in our sort of the way we look at the world, we have an established place for that. There are things that happen unexpectedly to people that um, are horrible, but we know they happen. What we don't have a place in our brain for, and because of this unique time that we've lived through prior to this, is we don't generally expect healthy people, young people, people that are not otherwise, you know, uh, health compromised. We do not expect them to suddenly get sick and die or to, you know, have the sort of course you're describing. So it's this perfect storm of us not having healthcare training to expect to see what you're describing. And yet we have this deep, deep evolved um, fear of this. And those two meet and that dissonance is just devastating. And then the other thing you said, I think that's really striking is we are also not used to, to having to not leverage human social connection for our clinical work, right? So, you know, when people are sick and dying traditionally, the family comes in, they're there, you know, it's you're, you know, you are the healthcare provider, but you're not the, the 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 priest and the undertaker and the psychologist and the et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now, you know, this thing about you know the patient goes into the hospital and that's the last anybody ever sees of them. I mean, that is just you know, we cannot say enough about what a stressful and difficult thing that is, and the role of clinicians being the go-between is just, that is just really, really hard. Yeah, I agree with all of your sentiments here. And I think one thing that is somewhat comforting to remember in all of this is this is a global issue, right? And healthcare providers across the globe are dealing with this. Uh, the World Health Organization just recently released a um, impact of COVID-19 on mental health study that had some very interesting data coming from all over the globe about the levels of stress that have increased and the complications because of all the different aspects of how care have changed under the pandemic. And one of the things I think as we talk about establishing that connection with our patients um, that has been an unexpected barrier is the actual physical barriers we are wearing. The PPE that we are wearing 
It does. It creates a barrier. Your patients cannot see your face. They cannot see your reaction. They don't see you smile. Um, and they don't see, get that comforting eye contact you normally would get with a whole expression of a face when you're trying to relay difficult news. Um, what have you guys seen in relation to the PPE and some of the human interactions that, that have been changing? Yeah, James, I think your point is well taken uh, in terms of this uh, you know, masking of faces and the lack of uh, human connection. You know, we're social animals. Um, we're social by design. Uh, so much of our communication um, is facial expression. Uh, it's our body language. Uh, in fact, some would say that our facial expression, communication, uh, prosody in our voices, uh, body language, and that connection with our patients uh, in that way is, is therapeutic. But in this uh, age of COVID-19, uh, masking, in a sense, uh, takes away that aspect um, of of who we want to be and who we are and our identity uh, that's obfuscated and hidden. And I think another thing that also happens with this masking is that uh, patients respond to us when they see our faces. They respond to us uh, in very important ways. And the masks that we have to wear make it hard for them and for us. Um, We've all seen pictures in the news of uh, the healthcare providers in New York taking photos of themselves, their headshots to their PPEs, uh, just so patients can see their faces. And we're doing something similar to that here in Dallas. And this is this connection face-to-face -face is, uh, I think, part of the therapeutic healing of that human connection uh, that's now lost. And, and it is yet another aspect of the grief and loss that we are experiencing healthcare providers in our relationships with patients. I agree that I think that it's a double-edged sword with that where we know we need to wear PPE. We have to be able to protect ourselves. This is a different situation in that most of us you know, don't work in infectious disease or things where we're worried our patient could give us the illness. Um, and I think that has changed the interactions and being cognizant of how that affects our patients, I think, is very important. Now, one of the other things we, we touched on a little bit is this aspect of healthcare providers being the communication go-between and being that um, kind of all-encompassing provider for the family as well now. Um, have you seen anything in your practices or have you seen any changes or how do you feel like that is affecting providers? Yeah, you know, James, uh, in working with students, for example, one of the things we work with them on is what we call bad news delivery. Well, in these days, the bad news delivery is tougher than ever. And for us to be at the, at the center or in the middle of a dying patient and a family member, uh, when it may be uh, we are the ones who, who indeed are the obstacle for family members to be present with their loved ones as they're passing. Um, and those, those family members who can't be present. And I think it's important to acknowledge the grief and that conflictedness that healthcare providers are experiencing uh, when family members are, are 
grieving and anticipating the loss of their loved one, and 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 we're the we're the we're the one who's closing the door to them. Uh, but I think uh, you know many healthcare providers in many of the settings, uh, we're seeing them very creatively trying to help patients and families be connected. I agree. I think that. Um burden of delivering bad news to family when they can't physically see the patient is very difficult because they have an idea in their head of what their loved one looks like and should look like, and they can't physically see what's going on. Um, and that can be a very difficult conversation to, to get a family to understand where things are at. And in addition to being in the middle between families and patients, uh, for many healthcare providers, for for many of us, there may not be an opportunity uh, to express our own personal grief and loss uh, around these patients who um, are dying from this COVID nineteen. Yeah, and you know, of course, then there's the, and of course there are frontline clinicians who have family members themselves that are dying or have died, and you know that puts a sort of overwhelming difficulty on it because again the same thing it brings it home in really really painful ways that we are not uh, hugely used to always in the practice of modern medicine I definitely agree now a lot of this discussion around healthcare providers right now focuses on those working directly with our COVID-19 patients however Many other providers across our nation and our globe are facing challenges. Self-isolating at home while seeing patients virtually, transitioning the way they provide care, and even many PAs and physicians facing sudden job loss or furloughs. The American Academy of PAs just released a recent survey that showed that 22% of PAs during this pandemic have become furloughed, with another three to six losing their jobs. So in a time of a global pandemic, we have nearly one in five capable PAs who are unable to respond. So I think it does show that we have a little bit of a gap in our system as to how we utilize people who can provide care. And I think it shows an opportunity for us going forward as something we could do slightly better. But as we're seeing this, what are you guys seeing with your colleagues? The, the stress, is there an attitude or a collective feeling that you're seeing in providers that aren't actively treating these patients? Yeah, I, mean, I, can, I, can, speak, I can speak to that. Um, you know, and let me, you know, I think the first thing to say is, you know, we started this discussion by talking about the unique stressors related to COVID. One of the unique stressors, and it is a crazy maker, is the horrible catch-22 that this pandemic has placed upon us, right? So basically, you know, we humans squabble with each other, but we've built this entire optimized network that depends upon us all being able to be interconnected pretty much all the time, right? And COVID has blown that apart. COVID has basically said, you know, humans, unless you are going to consider the world of viruses and bacteria and bring us to the table in some way, uh, you're not going to be able over the long run to have this sort of densely interconnected um, sort of financial structure. It will not work. It'll come down. And the catch-22 is if I want to optimally survive COVID, I need to, to do things or not do things upon which my financial security rests. 
if I want to have financial security uh, for many of us, it requires that we then increase our risk of infection. And society-wide, you can see that very clearly. They're like in a yin and yang balance with each other. And, you know, there's a sort of sense that whatever you do to optimize one comes at the cost of the other. So you're always having to make this horrific choice. You're going to get stressed regardless of which direction, not only that you as an individual move, but we as a society move, right? So, you know, I mean, uh, the states are collapsing financially, so they open back up again. And, um, you know, that may help the financial, but then if we get a resurgence of cases, do we say, well, then, uh, you know, we're just going to tolerate this large death count, or do we close down again and then the, 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 the financial hits? So just the whole situation is the worst type of stressor because, you know, it's not like you can discipline your way out of it. Whatever direction you choose, you're going to, you, you may well pay a price in the other direction. And, you know, so much depends, especially in the United States, upon our ability to care for ourselves financially, that when that's threatened, um, you know, it may not be as much of a direct stressor as dealing with, you know, your, your mortality or the mortality of your family or these really difficult clinical situations, but it's a pretty horrible stressor. You know, if you have to start worrying about making your mortgage uh, or, or covering your health insurance, you know, we do not have a very good safety net all in, in the United States. And so it, it's, it's just a really significant stressor. And I, I've certainly, um, I've experienced that personally. I, I do a number of things and almost every single one of them has been impacted. And, you know, I lay awake at night worrying about my finances. You know, I, some of the time I worry about catching COVID and some of the time I worry about, you know, how am I going to financially survive this? Um, and so I, I think many of us are in my position that way. And, you know, and then there's everything else. You know, if, if, even if you have been unemployed, if you're not unemployed, um, there's some real stresses for a lot of people in having their life so radically disrupted. And, you know, in our house, we've come to talk about the before times and you know, what we used to do in the before times. And that really, I think, speaks to this massive stress of, you know, not knowing even how our basic daily lives are going to, uh, to turn out after all this. And I'd like to jump in there and just say, too, uh, that uh, I absolutely agree with you, Chuck, and, and it's the open-endedness uh, in terms of the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety that we're experiencing. Uh, it is so open-ended. We don't know how long, how bad, uh, how much longer this is going to go on. And I think one of the things that has happened uh, for those of us in healthcare, I don't think we ever predicted or ever thought that we would have the economic uncertainty that we're having today. Uh, healthcare always uh, appeared to be um, a relatively economically safe place to be uh, in terms of, of working uh, and employment. Uh, and and COVID-19 has turned the whole world upside down. And not only for us as PAs uh, and uh, healthcare providers right now, but also for students uh, who came into the healthcare workforce uh, anticipating uh, some degree of uh, job certainty and security as PAs. Yeah, you're right, Kathy. That is, that, you know, that is a great, great point. You know, entrepreneurs, you know, they expect to make, you know, millions or go bust. It's sort of in their, you know, it's part of the deal. 
But right, we, we in healthcare in general have this sense of, you know, if we do this, it's like an unspoken contract, isn't it? If we do the training, if we get the experience, if we do our job well, um, we can assume that we will have a certain style of life, a certain, a certain way that we can, you know, build our budgets. We, yeah, we, we just, you know, and it does, it reminds me a little bit of those old stories of sailors who, you know, were dying of thirst on a ship and they're surrounded by water, but it's sort of salt water, you know? I mean, here we are in a time of unmet, just un, unprecedented medical need and how sadly paradoxical that many of us have, um, you know, have been furloughed or let go or, you know, I, you're right. And James, you're so true. There's something, you, you, it really makes you wonder about the structure of things that, that this is happening in a time when there's so much medical need. I'd just like to add, too, that uh, be it economically, professionally, personally, uh, this whole sense of safety. Um, we've, we've lost that general sense of safety um, in the way we live our lives. And as you so simply express the fact that uh, we face our patients, and in the past uh, we've been concerned about uh, their illnesses and sicknesses and injuries, et cetera, and now we're faced with a very real risk that they may be a risk to us. And so consequently, I think, uh, you know, it's not only the... I think we're, I see this as grieving. I mean, I see this as a, a problem of grieving that we're experiencing on a micro and a macro level. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, going back to the adage that it is tossed around so regularly these days, we're all in this together. Uh, and it's, an, it's important, I think, to acknowledge uh, the the grief and the losses uh, at all levels that we're experiencing and feeling, um, understanding it, accepting it, and letting go of what we can't control. Uh, more importantly, um, to reach out and stay connected. Um, I've, lately, I find myself reframing uh, this uh, social uh, social distancing. Uh, and reframing it to um, physical distancing. Physical, yep, physical distancing, yes, and social connectedness. I like that point you made about maintaining social connectedness while we are distancing. I think I've seen some very interesting and creative ways that, you know, as graduations were going on, people celebrating together, but at a great distance, you know, people coming out in neighborhoods, driving their cars around. There's a lot of ways we can try and still be involved with each other. Now, we have talked a lot about the challenges, but I want to emphasize that there is a lot of hope. There is a lot of support, and there are a lot of resources for all providers to take advantage of during all of this time. Now, for PAs who, who are struggling, what would, you, what would you like them to know? When we think about mental health, I think about it in sort of tiers or levels, right? So, you know, the first thing we want to do is to protect our mental health, uh, to protect our well-being. And then if we begin to develop, you know, depression or anxiety or trauma-related um, experiences, that are overwhelming and beginning to impair our ability to function or to feel okay about our lives, then we really need to get treatment, right? So it, let's start with the first one. Uh, what can we do to help maintain our mental health 
um, such as it is. And, and um, you know, Kathy's been talking about something I think that is just utterly essential, which is, you know, we don't know when this is going to end. I have been telling people a lot, look, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And, um, you know, when you're in something for a long period of time, um, you know, you can only run at top speed for a certain amount of time, and then you're going to have to stop and catch your breath. And we need to look for ways to get through the long haul. Um, we need to find rest periods as best we can. We need to find ways to not always be under the maximal stress that this thing is causing. So how do we, you know, how do we find those rest periods? And there's a variety of ways of doing it. But, you know, I, I've sort of had this slogan I've been telling people, you know, one of the tricks you can do, stress your body, rest your mind. And what I mean by that is there are a number of adaptive stressors that are very helpful for our emotional and mental well-being. The, the, the classic one is exercise, right? So, you know, exercise is a stressor. It, it, it activates all the same systems in your body that get activated if you're psychologically freaked out, upset, but it does it in ways that when you do it repeatedly, um, uh, build you up. They make you stronger, not weaker. And there's, there's very nice data showing that if you build up sort of uh, physical resilience through exercise, it, 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 it's like a cross training. It cross trains your, your emotional um, stress system to be more resilient also. So that's a classic example of when I say stress your body, rest your mind. Uh, another physiologic stressor that, that, that I've literally studied and that there's a lot of interest in nowadays is the use of heat. Um, it turns out that we did a study a number of years ago now showing that if you take people that are really depressed and put them in a machine, it's called hyperthermia, a, a machine that increases their body temperature, um, they had this really rapid and profound antidepressant response. And subsequent studies have shown that even hot baths in people that are depressed can have a protective and antidepressant effect. So, you know, things like exercise, things like, you know, taking a hot shower um, or a hot bath at night, if you find that that relaxes you. Many people paradoxically find that the opposite is actually physically beneficial, like a cold shower. There's a whole movement now of people that find that although it's an acute stressor, uh, it actually produces emotional ease. So combining combining exercise and those sorts of physical strategies with things to rest your mind. And so how do we rest our minds? Well, you know, um, uh, many people find meditation, uh, mindfulness to be of value in this regard. Um, to Kathy's comments, one of the things that really is restful for us is to have social connection. There are all sorts of studies showing that having one person in your life that you can talk honestly with, that doesn't judge you, that you can share, you know, who you really are and what you're really feeling, somebody that is, is in there with you, that you feel knows you, that, that even one relationship like that in one's life has huge potential. To, it, it, it protects your health. It protects you from depression. Um, it, it's really striking. So, so honoring and working on our intimate relationships um, is, is something else that allows us to sort of feel comfortable and rest our minds. And then, of course, there's other things like, you know, we should get good sleep. So to the degree that we can, and that's easier said than done, but to the degree that we can do that, that is also just a classic strategy for enhancing our, uh, our mental and emotional well-being. And then, you know, if that's tier one, tier two is, you know, um, we are already heroes in so many ways that if, if we find ourselves in a position where, 
you know, a couple of, a few weeks have passed and we're not sleeping and our appetite is messed up and we, we're just depressed and anxious and, you know, all the symptoms that go along with um, depression and anxiety. You know, if they really begin to be problematic for us, we really need to get help. We need to see somebody. And, you know, if we say what are the things we know benefit those symptoms, um, psychotherapy is as good as medications. Um, medications help many people too. They're not perfect, but, um, they can really be lifesavers when things get really tough. So, I mean, that's my other message to people is, you know, if, if, if a number of weeks have gone by and you're really, really struggling, you know, please get help, get professional help. It can make a world of difference. Yeah, I agree with that, Chuck, that, uh, whenever, um, whenever anyone uh, is finding themselves, uh, slipping into, uh, kind of a dark, isolated place uh, to reach out to uh, colleagues, uh, mental health services providers, uh, and to not uh, stay alone and stay isolated. Uh, you know, that there, 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 is, there is hope in this. I truly believe this will end. We don't know when. Right now it's open-ended. We do not know when. Um, I truly believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it is not the train, although we may fear that. Um, but it's important to, um, in terms of um, uh, focusing on um, staying social, staying connected, uh, and uh, reaching out uh, to our peers, colleagues uh, around us, uh, and uh, realizing and appreciating the relationships uh, in our lives that uh, are so critical and so important during this difficult time. Thank you both. I think you both gave some really good advice there. Um, and you know, just from my own experience with this, I think it can be very simple and very small things that we implement that make major differences. Uh, I definitely found myself in that, you know, after about a week or two of constant stressors, feeling that just, as you said, poor sleep, lack of appetite, feeling somewhat apathetic and isolating myself. And I recognized it after about the third day of poor dinners. And immediately, well, I need to do something different here. And so I started calling some of my colleagues and just talking about what are, what are they going through right now? What are we dealing with? And I think that evening of having phone calls, and then I made a point to get up the next day, find some time to go walk around in nature. Because that, for me, I know is something that helps. And it did take, though, an actual recognition and you know, sucking it up and being a little bit humble with myself who doesn't want to admit I have anything going wrong, that this is not normal for me. What I'm doing right now is not normal. So let's do something to get back on track. And that was a very good realization, I think, that I made that we can help all of our providers around us with those exact same things because these stresses come and go. You know, it's, some weeks are worse than others. I think being in tune with that as providers, we need to know how we're feeling on a daily basis to be able to treat our patients to the top of our licenses. And James, I think perhaps what you might be suggesting, which is what I would suggest, is that um, we all have a plan, that we have a plan uh, that includes uh, who do I call when I start feeling a bit down? Uh, where can I go? Who can I reach out to? What can I do? Uh, 
and develop a plan ahead of time, uh, and just as you have uh, done yourself, um, you know, following that and reaching out to others and uh, realizing the importance of those others and focusing uh, as much as possible um, on as we help one another as much as we can through this difficult time. Well, thank you, Kathy. I think that's very good to remember. Um, and it is so important for providers to remember we have support around us and we need to reach out and talk to each other. Now, in psychiatry, this pandemic has shown us there is a great need. There's a great need for mental health providers, both locally and globally. And are we seeing anything in education or, Kathy, how do you feel like this pandemic has shown us what the PA's role can be in psychiatry? Thank you, James, for, uh, for asking about the role of PAs in psychiatry. I truly believe that uh, PAs, our skill sets, our training, uh, were positioned to provide uh, mental health services to our patients. Uh, I think one of the, um, given all of the ground we've covered this afternoon, I think it's reasonable to expect a tsunami of patients uh, in the future who are going to be needing, uh, in addition to meeting their medical needs, mental health needs as well, addressing anxiety and and uh, all that has um, uh, come out of their experiences during this COVID-19. My mantra uh, is that all PAs are mental health PAs. We are all purveyors of mental health services. We are all purveyors to support the well-being and the being well of our patients, uh, and that uh, we indeed have that skill set regardless of the discipline that we've been working in. Uh, to be mental health services providers. You know, it's funny, Kathy, you say that because when I teach medical students, um, I, I always, at the beginning of the reputation, I say, can I see the hands of everybody who plans on going into psychiatry? And, you know, maybe one hand goes up. And I say, oh, no, no, you're all wrong. You know, maybe if you're going to be a pathologist, but otherwise you will be psychiatrists. And I want you to remember this day that you think you're going to be a surgeon. No, you're going to be a psychiatrist. And if you're going to be a internal medicine doctor, you're really going to be a psychiatrist. And, you know, you need to learn how to understand these things and find satisfaction in this work. Or you're going to be pretty miserable in your job. Most of the, many of the, many of the docs I know who are very unhappy, um, it's, it's that they're being asked to deal with mental health and they, they struggle with that. Um, and, you know, to your point about physician assistants, um, I tell you what, you know, I, I, I have been so impressed with the work that you and the other folks that I'm involved with do in mental health. I, I think you, uh, I hate to say this about my own profession because I'm a psychiatrist, of course, but I really think you put us to shame. And I, I think one of the great strengths you have is that you've got this ability to combine pharmacologic expertise with a real caring human face. And, uh, you know, I, I, the research I've done over the years has just highlighted increasingly for me that these are really human disorders and that, um, that having that balance and being able to, to, to um, address people's psychological, personal narrative needs is so important. And so, I mean, I, I, I just yearn. I, I wish there was more um, physician assistants in the mental health space. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging field, but it's a highly rewarding field. We can make a big impact on people's lives 
Um, and, you know, and you're right that, you know, for anybody going into healthcare, um, I encourage them to think deeply about the fact that they will be mental health clinicians, um, regardless of what they think they're doing and how important it is then to understand the best skills in the mental health space um, and, and, and how best to help people with these conditions because they come along with everything else and they're, and sadly they often cause other things. They're just, Chuck, you are absolutely right in terms of causing other things. And there's a wonderful quote um, that I use frequently in lectures to students. And that is the pain that finds no vent in tears will make other organs weep. That was Osler. Who was it that said that? That's a, yeah, it was Osler. Osler. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. Uh, oh, and and so oftentimes, you know, uh, students that I've had will come back later once they've been out in practice, and they'll say the the very same thing that you tell your medical students is that they come back and they say, you know, I'm in dermatology, and ninety percent of what I'm doing is psychiatry. Or uh, I'm in internal medicine, and 65% of what I'm doing is psychiatry. Um, so yeah, it's so true. The need is it's ubiquitous. So the need is ubiquitous, and of course, you know. It, so not only, of course, does the does the mind and the, the emotional heart drive illness, but illness, of course. Uh, it so deeply impacts our emotions and our minds and our hopes. And this goes back to COVID, of course, right? That, that in just so many ways, um, you know, it's, it's a spinning circle uh, of between the mind and the body when it comes to illness and being able to address both domains simultaneously is such a challenge, but oh man, when a clinician can do it, the results are, are just disproportionately larger than when they're, they're dealt with in isolation. And the professional and personal reward uh, increases um, astronomically. Sure does. Thank you both for sharing your insights and stories. I think this has been a very good discussion with a lot of good information about what is going on in mental health in relation to the pandemic here. Now, I think it's very important to focus on the fact that there are positives and focusing on the positive at work daily as much as we can. You know, people are getting better. We are treating people. We are saving lives. And remembering to help each other as much as we can throughout this is going to be so important. Now, for people listening in, are there any other resources that you would recommend for PAs or healthcare providers who are having a hard time? Is there anything you'd say, go to this, this is a good spot? I think one of the important things, one of the most important resources is one another. Uh, one of the most important resources are the people who are close to us, uh, our colleagues. And one of the things that I think is really important is sharing our stories. And as Chuck said earlier, um, that the importance of, of having that, and I call them a three o'clock in the morning friend, uh, the, that person that you can call up any time of day or night uh, and uh, tell the story of what place you happen to be in uh, and needing to reach out to another person from. Yeah, I, I completely agree, um, Kathy. I mean, that is, you know, so important. There, there's, there, are, there are a number of online resources. Um, I think they can be quite helpful. There's so many of them that 
you know, I hesitate to even uh, toss any out. But I mean, there, there's there's a wealth of really um, credible, um, you know, sort of resources being generated online. But you know, online is a it's 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 many ways it's sort of our lifeline right now. But it, it's just not the same as that that real human to human contact. And then I think also, you know, James, to your point, um, again, if people are really struggling, it's also important um, not to just rely on online resources, but to really get, um, you know, pragmatic clinical help. Um, so that's just really important if things start getting really dark and hard for a person. I agree. That's so important to get the help that is readily available for us. Now, thank you both so much for your insights on this very timely topic. Uh, as circumstances continue to evolve and change every day, this will clearly become and continue to be a very important conversation. Thank you, James, for this opportunity for Chuck and I to address this important issue of mental health in the time of COVID-19. I hope we've been able to provide our listeners with some useful and valuable information to keep not only themselves mentally healthy, but also to respond to the, their colleagues and patients' needs. And I also want to thank the Foundation for recognizing this as an important topic for Vital Minds. We as PAs have the skill set to provide mental health services, not only to our patients, but also in the context of being a support to our peers, colleagues, family, and friends. Our training gives us that skill set for responding to patients in the context of a therapeutic relationship and being able to provide help and support when needed and to recognize when referral is needed to a mental health provider. However, that said, I would also like to add that my mantra is that as PAs, given our training in patient communication, assessment, our skill set in diagnosis and treatment, that we are all psych PAs. So with that, let me just close and say once again, thank you to you, the Foundation, and most importantly, to my friend and colleague, Dr. Chuck Rayzone, who has joined me in this podcast. Chuck? Yeah, I, I really thank you. I was glad to get a chance to talk about this. And, you know, I just, I have such admiration for the folks that are on the front lines, and I have so much admiration for those that have been furloughed or are struggling with things at home. It's just, you know, as, you've, as Kathy said repeatedly, we are really in this together. And a conversation like this is helpful for me, reminding me how we are all in this together. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today. Of course. Thank you both. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. We hope today's episode brings a little bit of hope during this time of great uncertainty. To learn more, you can visit the PA Foundation's website at pa-foundation.org for additional resources. And while you're there, be sure to catch up on all our Vital Minds episodes. Support for this episode of Vital Minds is provided by Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. Until next time, everyone, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds. Vital Minds.